and welcome back. This is the newest episode of the Fitness Reborn podcast. My name is Sean, and my guest today is Michael Osterlink. Michael is a human resilience and consciousness uh, relationship coach, a social entrepreneur, an athlete, martial artist, a nomad currently, perhaps maybe always, and a podcaster himself of the emergent human. Michael, thanks for coming on this morning. Hey, Sean. Good morning, and I appreciate you having me on your show. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. Yeah. So, like I said before we started recording here, I mean, I went through your biography and your website, and you know, you've got a stacked resume to say the least. And so, uh, just to kind of like, uh, just kind of start somewhere here. Well, you honestly, like your beginnings, just on the on their own, are interesting. You said that you got introduced to like meditation and kind of like transcendental um, work very early in life at nine years old. Um, so, well, I guess, well, let's start, let's start there. Let's start with your early life there. Like what, what, what brought that on? What got you? I assume your parents got you into doing that. Yeah. Well, actually I'll, I'll step back because the, the, the therapist who taught me biofeedback got an imagery meditation. Her name is Pat Lawson, but there's actually a story right before that, which I think is kind of funny, especially as uh -huh. a kid, which gives you an idea of who I am and what, and what I was heading to, to do. So I, I saw Mrs. Lawson because I had some learned disabilities and various health issues and they're kind of showing up psychologically. But previous to seeing Mrs. Lawson, my mom took me to see a psychiatrist and this is 1979. And I, we, I sat with my mom in the, in the session and the psychiatrist does his little thing talking. And at the end of the session, I turn to her and this is in front of him. And I say, he's fat, he smokes, he can't help himself. How's he gonna help me? I don't wanna see him ever again. And I walked out. And fortunately, my mom agreed with me, <laughs> walked out with me, because like retrospectively, in 1979, the psychiatrist would have put me on medication. That's what psychiatrists do today, but especially back then. Yeah, I was going to say they do that today. So what's yeah. different? Yeah, it, it, yeah, exactly. So the, I was fortunate that my mom supported me and brought me to Mrs. Lawson. And Mrs. Lawson, like I said, taught me guided imagery, meditation, biofeedback, got me into the martial arts. I, still, you know, I got into Eastern philosophy as a result of her and, and Taekwondo is the first martial art I took. Mm -hmm. Which I think is required by law for all kids here in the States. But yeah. <laughs> you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> but she kind of opened up the whole space for me and got me really interested in kind of human development, human health, human well being, transpersonal type of things. And that just kind of took off from there. Okay. So you had health issues. Um, so kind of like a sickly kid then, and then you yeah. had what would be called like ADHD and things like that, or um, not no? ADHD. It was more like, um, at first, the teachers would call me lazy because yeah. I wasn't wasn't doing well in some classes, but doing really well in others. So, like in second grade, I was reading at sixth grade level type of thing, but other things I was really low. So they, they like accused me of just being lazy, 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 lazy. But they finally figured out that I have I, I had an information processing challenge. There are lots of testing, and so they're like, "Oh, it's not, he's not lazy. He just doesn't have the capabilities at this time to do it their way, the way they want me to do it." Mm -hmm. So, like you know, I had. I loved learning. I didn't like school because school is really hard, but I love to learn. So I was always reading. I was always studying stuff. I was always having conversations with adults, but the school thing was not my thing. And because learning disability made school not very fun. Yeah. They kind of put you in a box and they had the expectations of who you're supposed to be. And they try to mold you into how things are supposed to be as opposed to like 
you're a unique individual. You learn differently than others. You know, so like, let's highlight that as opposed to, no, you're doing it wrong. Let's put you in a right. box. <clears throat> yeah, so that's, that was all going on inside of my psyche at the time. Yeah. So that's interesting that you, you mentioned the fact that they highlight that they highlighted the fact that you had a different way of learning than anyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I recently, I was at a STEM fair with my, with my nine-year-old son. Oh, nice. Nice. Yeah. I was at a STEM fair and there was a table for the department of neuroscience. And there was these two women that was staffed at it and they had these, they had these, you know, games and stuff like that to entertain kids and to get them interested in. And some of these games were flashcards. They were like true and false flashcards, right? And so, the, I don't know, there were like maybe 10, 12 of them. But one of them, I remember, was like true or false. People have different learning abilities. And he answered true. And I would have thought true as well. But then they told us, no, the answer actually is false. That people don't have a different way of learning. That there is pretty much one way of learning that almost that suits about 95% of the population. And I was kind of like, really? Well, that's kind of contrary to everything I've heard for so long and everything that my kids, my son's school says, because he does have diagnosed learning disabilities. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. What's your thoughts on that? Yeah. So, you know, I'm always open to the possibility that what that there's some truth there, but from my experience, my study, my research, I would say that's not true because there's some auditory people are some people are auditory, some people are visual, kinesthetic. Mm-hmm. There's multiple ways that people learn. So I, I would find it hard to collapse everything to just there's one style of learning for all human beings. That doesn't even make sense to me. But like right. if there's research to prove it, <clears throat> okay, show me the research. But you know, I, I, I'll give you an example because of like highlighting my unique way of doing things versus sticking me in a box. I'm, I'd be curious, like for your son, as an example. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, one example I have is like uh, in 10th grade, you have to do geometry. You might remember that. Yeah. And you have to do proofs, right? And I could do my proofs in the head. I couldn't do them on paper. Like I could tell you what the answer was, but I couldn't write them out. And at the time, my teacher kept saying, I'm cheating, I'm cheating, I'm cheating. I'm like, hey, look at me. I'm literally not looking at anyone's paper. I don't know how to do it your way, but here's the answer. Retrospectively, I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like, let's highlight the fact that he can do it in his head. That's kind of interesting, as opposed to what she says, like, you need to learn to do it our way. So I had to go get a tutor. So I had to spend the next six months, hour every week, learning how to do it the proper way, as opposed to like, wow, that's kind of cool that you can do it differently. But let's look into that. Not to say you shouldn't learn how to do it the proper way, whatever that means, but like, the fact that they stick you in a box, I think, is a problem for all human beings, especially in our education system here in the States. Right. And this is not to condemn his school. The school has actually has been very open to this idea that people learn differently. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm actually thankful for that because it seems like it's a much more uh, widely accepted um, uh, concept or widely accepted uh, theory, I guess, if you want to call it that, learning theory, uh, than it was even when I was in school. Um, I think, obviously, they knew about learning disabilities or were much more accepting of them in the 90s when I was in elementary school mm. versus when maybe you weren't um, in the 70s in the 70s. <laughs> yeah. But even still, but even still, it was just kind of I think I don't think they made as many accommodations as they do now no. yeah, 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 yeah. Um, to try to understand that people come from different places in yeah. terms of how they do learn. So when they so uh, let's go back a little bit. Did they actually diagnose you as having a learning disability? And oh, they, yeah. I, they actually all, wor- okay. I had to do all the testing. I got put into a learning disability class. 
And then I got myself taken out of the class. I'll, I'll share a funny story with you. So, you know, one class of, uh, out of five every day, I had to go to a learning disability class. And yeah. give me, they, I noticed that they gave me the same assignments as they gave everyone else. I'm like, well, my learning disability is different than everyone else's. Why would you give me the same assignments as everyone else? You're just wasting my time. So I was kind of an obnoxious kid. You know, I wasn't like misbehaving, but just like just honoring my own truth. And I'd refuse to do the work. So they keep sending me to the principal's office. And the principal yell at me and tell me to go back and do the work. And I go back to class. And I refuse to do the work. Like, you give me something that's going to help me, I'll do it. You're giving me something that just like, I'm, it's like in a zoo. I'm just going to sit here and like, you know, be under like waste my time. Uh, then I don't want to do it. So literally for weeks, I've kept going to the principal's office, coming back to the principal's office. And eventually my father came in and just yanked me out of that. He, like, he yelled at the principal, wasting my time, you know, attacking my character, all that kind of good stuff, and pulled me out of the program. And then I got retested in high school and got put back in the, into a program. Mm. But the first program was not serving me. At least that was my perspective. Like, it's just wasting my time. Oh, so the second one in high school was better? The second one in high school is better because one thing it led to is is the ability to to eventually in college. I, I went to a school, West Virginia Wesleyan College, which had a great learning disability program. And because of that diagnosis from high school, I was able to do a lot of my tests orally, um, which I, I'm much better than in writing my tests out. So I like for history. I, I the history teachers actually asked me asked me to shut up because like, I loved history and I could just do 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 do. Like okay, you get your A, go away. <laughs> you talk too much. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I get to express my knowledge nice. on a particular subject where writing was at the time was more difficult for me. So I, I you know, it's given a little bit of leeway of my style of learning and expressing. Yeah, I think you know, you're what you're describing sounds similar to what my son has. Like he can, I mean, I, I don't think he can just, you know, come up with calculations on the spot in his head and just struggles with putting it on paper. But he does seem to do things orally a little better than he does <laughs> writing. And the, I, we don't really understand why this disconnect is between um, what's in his head and what he actually physically writes. Wow. Um, but there, that is there. But so in any case, it, okay, you had all these experiences um, with, with school and you got into martial arts and you got in, you saw the specialists and saw this stuff. So this is all kind of like a buildup to what you're doing now, which is kind of like you're in all areas here of human development is what it seems like. Um, so, so let's talk about like what got you into human resilience and relationships. Yeah. So um, my graduate work is in transpersonal counseling psychology. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I did my postgraduate training in somatic or body psychology. So, you know, out of the graduate work, human relationships was kind of like what I, f I focused on relationships and, and marriage and family and stuff. The human resilience kind of came a little bit later. Um, I, I did some work. I actually did three weeks off Academy at SealFit and Kokoro Camp, which we can talk about if you like. And then I ended up working for them for about a decade. And, and their whole program is about human resilience, beating, creating an unbeatable mind is, is kind of yeah. the focus. Um, Kokoro or Indomitable Spirit is another term that we use there. Mm -hmm. and, and I had the opportunity to work for Commander Mark Devine there, but also work for Dan Sorello, who unfortunately passed away this year. He's a former Navy SEAL as well, and I worked for him in Spartan 7, which is his company. And that was also kind of a resilience-oriented place as well. So you know, I was just fortunate to, to spend time and learn from people who are really kind of key players in the human resilience space. Um, and then if you go back to my kind of graduate work, it was also human resilience because it was like the somatic psychology is like how do you build the inner resilience somatically inside the body 
So you can be more emotionally resilient, mentally tough, caring, compassionate, loving, all those kind of good things. Um, so just fed into each other. Like I, the graduate studies, my work with clients, and then eventually the work for SteelFit, and then Spartan 7, and other companies I've worked for over the years, too. Is uh, Spartan 7 related to the Spartan race at all? Do you joke? No, no, no? different. Okay. Uh, Spartan 7 is, is kind of two companies. Uh, it's a security company, so they okay. provide security for like you know CEOs and Hollywood folks, and they also have kind of an adventure tactical wing. So I coach for that. So like they they take every quarter they take the guys out to like uh, sniper or close quarters combat or sh uh, shooting hogs from the helicopter or even fishing. We we this kind of really cool thing of fishing in Montana, and then I coach in between the sessions and I run the the weekly groups as well, weekly calls. So that was that's what I did for them, but there's no affiliation with Spartan Race. So what do you teach people there? And, and Seal Fit, it was really interesting to me too because I've looked into that too uh, over the years. I've even got a book here somewhere from Mark Devine. Um, hmm. I think it's yeah, it was like a information slash workout book, that kind of thing. I think I did some of the exercises. Nice. I actually here's an interesting story. Um, like he because he talks a lot about challenging yourself about like maybe once a month, like doing something really hard like that you wouldn't normally do it was like a once a month kind of thing yeah. so i challenged myself one day to do a thousand push-ups nice, nice and i did it it took me three hours and 19 minutes at least you did it man that's awesome but, but yeah, yeah. i did it yeah and yeah. you know you know funny it was getting really it was getting really hard there towards the end but once i got to like I was in 700 push-ups and I was like, man, I'm not quitting now, you know, <laughs> good on you. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So that's, so yeah, seal phase has been real interesting and Kokoro. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've even thought about, uh, taking that up. Um, well, you'll, you'll appreciate this just with your thousand push-up challenge. I was yeah. in San Francisco. This is like 2009. I'm like, I'm going to fly down to San Diego and see Mark. And this is before my three weeks off academy and before Coco camp. So I've never met him. I talked to him on the phone. I signed up for his programs and I flew down. And I, and I literally, the shuttle pulls into the headquarters and I get out and have all my gear. And he's like, Hey, welcome to seal fit. We're doing a thousand push up challenge. I like, welcome to seal fit. So like, I, you know, I have to get down like you, like just yeah. pump them out. Yeah. Yeah. Pump them out. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's really, it's really fun. It's really cool. When you, you know, you get to 700, 800 pushups it, at that point, it doesn't make any sense to quit, even though you, every bone in your body and muscle in your body is mm -hmm. killing you. You know, if, if I was only like 300 in, I would probably, I might've said, you know, I don't really want to do this. But once you get to that point, it's like, what's the point of quitting? Right, right, you know? right, right. right. You know? But it, it's interesting, like the idea of human resilience has uh, fascinated me for a long time. That's why uh, my direction towards seal fit came from. And I have listened to a, f a few uh, Mark Devine's podcasts, mm -hmm. which I now think is just the Mark Devine podcast. I think yeah. it was called like Unbeatable Mind at mm -hmm. one point, but he changed it. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, okay. exactly. So this idea, this uh, realm of human resilience, um, it has a lot of uh, interest in the general public. Um, where do you think that really comes from, and what do you what do you really teach people here that re uh, really relates to their life? Well, I say where it comes from, like the interest. You mean? Yeah. Well, the the interest in it. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, our culture, for the most part, is heading heading in the opposite direction. Okay. We're less emotionally resilient. We're less mentally resilient. We're less physically resilient. I mean, you can look at any of the parameters. Like for emotionality, the empathy is decreasing over time. 
okay, which is like not good because you need to have empathetic human beings to relate to one another so we can function in this world. But like I heard just a couple of days ago, the IQ is actually starting to diminish. That's just really? one parameter of intelligence. There's 22 lines of intelligence, but like that's at least one. Um, so like, yeah, that's kind of scary. And then physically, I'm mean, just the, the increase in numbers of various diseases, heart disease, obesity, cancer, you know, is on the rise. And then on the mental illness you know, side, like anxiety, depression on the rise as well. It's like our cultural forces are heading in the opposite direction. So there's a growing interest like, oh, how do we stop that and move us in a healthier direction? And a lot of the practices of, for instance, I teach at very, in these various programs, I think are useful towards those ends. You know, looking at yourself physically, how, how capable are you? And can you push yourself a little bit further each and every time? So it's you stress. You know, it's like a dynamic homeostasis. Like, let's push a little bit further. You get a new baseline, push a little further. But it can't just be physically. You actually have to stretch yourself mentally as well and emotionally as well. And if you want to go down the spiritual path, we can talk about going stretching yourself spiritually as well. All of those things, I think, are important for us to not only survive as a species, but thrive because our culture is actually heading us in the other direction. I think there's a real heavy uh, spiritual component to yeah. that sort of thing here because I, I don't know. I think there has to be, otherwise you won't get through it. Completely, I completely agree. I and I and I bring up spirituality lightly because not everyone wants to talk about that. That's cool. Mm -hmm. But if that's a, of interest, we can definitely go. Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not a super religious person mm -hmm. at all. And but, you know, the the doors and possibilities of spirituality have interest me because I have read up on Buddhism and, you know, and Taoism and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so it maybe it's just a kind of like an academic kind of bird's eye view that I'm taking here because I've never really um, adopted any of these philosophies heavily into my own life. Um, but the, the possibilities that are there definitely do capture my imagination. Um, so is that, is that been really the, the same with you then? Have you gotten a real kind of like a spiritual, um, injection, I suppose? Yeah. From so I would say completely. Yes. My, uh, I mentioned my, my graduate work is in transpersonal mm -hmm. counseling psychology. So in order to study and test and get licensed, you have to study all the kind of conventional schools of psychology, which makes sense. Transpersonal is transcending the personal. It's it's about one way of considering is like higher states of consciousness, higher stages within particular lines, like higher morality, emotionality, cognition, heart. You can also look at it as how to explore non-ordinary states. Like all all religious traditions have spiritual practices, prayer, meditation, various yogas sensory deprivation, some pain-inducing events that some, some of the religious traditions do because they recognize it's not like having a religious life is not just a cognitive thing. It's like, I don't just believe this, but you open the hearts, you feel this. You open the bodies, the energetic flows, you open the minds, so you can really experience the fullness of life, the awe, you know, whatever your religious traditions are. Mm -hmm. like there are. There are practices that help open you up to those realities. So it's not just a cognitive thing. That's what I studied in grad school. So you did count. You have counseled people on on relationships. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I'm. So in 2001, I switched around 2001. I switched from being a therapist to a coach. Okay. Um, I still have my. I still have my license. You know, I still retain the license as a marriage and family therapist. 
but just for purposes of how I wanted to work with clients, I'm like, I had the, the limitations by the state I was in, in terms of what a therapist can do versus what a coach can do. Like I want, I want a little bit more leeway. So I just moved myself and removed myself from the therapy world, called myself a coach. Now coaching is like all over the place, but in 2001, yeah. there, it was not, it's kind of rare. It was rare to be a coach, a yeah, like, relationship coach in 2001. Yeah, because I would say like it became kind of popular in the late two thousand, like two thousand ten, fifteen, mm-hmm. twenty. Like now, everyone's a coach. But twenty two years ago, nah. If you're like you said, you're a coach. Like, oh, you coach football, <laughs> soccer. <laughs> yeah. Do you think that? Do you think that's a good thing though? This proliferation of being a coach. I mean, you're right because it's everywhere. It's all over social mm-hmm. media. Anyone can call themselves a coach. I mean, yep. I did for a time until I decided not to. It was just kind of like, um, you know, I am, but I really don't want the designation of, of a coach because it doesn't seem like it's really as potent as it once was because once every, was. Ev- everyone can jump on that bandwagon. Yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty libertarian, so I don't want the state telling you how to organize and live your life and what you call yourself. I want to minimize that. With that said, I do have concerns. I literally just talking to my buddy Jeff about this last night that um, it's so easy to become a coach. Like you take a weekend workshop and now you're a coach. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, I, you know, as a marriage and family therapist, I had to do 3000 clinical hours. I had to sit with hundreds, hundreds of patients, thousands of patients. You know, um, I actually got certified as a coach from NYU. I've done tons of trainings. So like, I'm confident in my ability to do therapy and, and coach. And not to say that someone can't have a really amazing life experience and come into the coaching space and just kick it, like just really nail it without having certification, that's always possible. Like I've met people who are like brilliant in a field without having actually formally studied it. And I'm mm-hmm. cool with that. But a lot of people that I see in a coaching space, I'm like, wow, man, I'd be really concerned because you open someone up, you know, to whatever's going on in their life inside their body, inside their psyche, and you're not skilled at helping them navigate that, you can cause some problems. And that's, that's of a concern for me with too many coaches. Well, a major concern could be what you said earlier is just this lack of uh, diminishing a- uh, empathy for people. Um, and a lot of this, of course, happens online, yeah, you know, yeah. which I think is a barrier to really feeling empathetic towards people. I mean, it's kind of the same as like the evening news. Um, I mean, you see you see the bad stuff on the uh, evening news. Right, right. And, you know, you know, it's horrible you see people like if you want to take for example what's going on now in palestine or even the ukraine you see people displaced and screaming and horrified or dead and it's like you know you see it you see it in glimpses though and it's bad but it's not exactly like your heart really goes out to them for the most part because it's such an abstraction you're seeing it on tv you know you could just as easily see something completely fictionalized a minute later you know, sure. So it kind of muddles your perception. I, I could imagine you, could, you might use the word numbing, numbs you out. Yeah. Right. Okay. Right. It it does. It numbs you out and it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not the same as like somebody who's sitting right in front of you or like you're being right in the middle of it. Yeah. yeah. Do you agree? Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, I think it does two things. I think it can numb you out to the realities of life. Like, oh, I don't want to pay attention. But mm-hmm. It's also great for like marketing and advertising because like if you actually TV programming, it's programming you. Like it literally puts you to a particular state of consciousness, so you're more receptive to whatever they're selling you when the commercial breaks. I mean, it's it's really fascinating. I I did an Ayurvedic retreat many many years ago for like a week, and 
we had no electronics, no TV, no nothing. And uh, just meditation and breathing and yoga and stuff like that. And I remember coming back, back home after the retreat and turning on the TV and literally gave me a headache. Mm. The, the flashing of the TV gave me a headache and the quick shifts of the images. Like if you go back and you look at a TV show from like my youth, there's like three seconds, maybe I, I could be wrong on the numbers, but like three seconds between moving from one, uh, like a picture to the other. Now it's like really fast, like the really fast angles, a lot of light, the sound. They're really good at the sound because they can use sound and, and music to induce states, you know, in the shows or even on news, whatever it is. So they, they intentionally put you in a state which opens you up to be more receptive to the advertising. So that you're just being programmed all the time if you spend too much time watching TV, which is a problem, I think. So is it, is this something that you uh, regularly coach people on? There's like sensory uh, kind of like coaching against sensory overload and things like that. And yeah, so um, one of the areas I do spend a lot of time with clients is energy management, like getting them mm-hmm. in touch with their own energetic systems. You brought right. up Taoism, so you can kind of think of it in the Taoist type of way. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you function in a 24-hour period of time? How do you function over a week, a month, a particular season, over the years? It shifts if you if you really track yourself closely. But what I tell people to do, if if possible, is take a week off, go in, in nature somewhere, and try to reconnect to the 24-hour day-night cycle. No phones, no artificial lights, no exogenous drugs. Like, don't use caffeine to wake you up in the morning. Don't use mm-hmm. marijuana or alcohol or sleeping agents to knock you out at night. Like, really get into your own natural rhythm, which is hard for a lot of people because they're, they're so used to, like, using exogenous chemicals to wake them up or bring them down or um, artificial lights, which is stir melatonin production, so I don't sleep well. But you get into that 24-hour cycle in nature, and you come back, and then I help them, as best as possible, organize their lives around that, because you'll, you'll increase the possibilities of healthier life, longevity, if you actually live within the 24-hour cycle, as opposed to like all the stuff I just mentioned. And then you can use exogenous chemicals for very particular purposes. So use caffeine or nicotine or whatever biohacks you want to do, for a very particular purpose, but recognizing that there's a there's a cost to the system. Like if you use an exogenous chemical and change your system to push yourself to be able to do something, what happened? Cool, okay. But there's a cost to that. So how do you build recovery on the other side? So I do a lot of work around that, getting to your natural cycles, and then how do you adjust and create dynamic homeostasis, was what I would say, and learn how to recover on the other side of intense work, mental, emotional, and physical work. How do people normally respond to this? You know, well, for many people, getting off the substances is really hard. Yeah. Because they're so used to it, you know. So, like, that's hard for some people. But once they get on the other side of that and they kind of, like, we start to study how they do things best energetically, they're happier. They're healthier. And you can't always do it 100% of the time because you have social obligations. Like, you know, if I said I do my best social engagement in the middle after the noon – where I do best road learning first thing in the morning, I do creative thinking in the afternoon or late evening, cool. But I might have obligations that keep me from like, here's my 90 minutes of doing this. No, you have to do this. You know, so I understand there's work obligations and family obligations, but as best as you can organize around your own energetic systems, be in alignment with that, you'll be a lot healthier and happier and more productive. This is what you've applied to your own life? As best as I can when I'm traveling, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, you told me before we started recording that you are currently on the road here. Is, and this is this is just like a visit friends sort of thing, right? Or is it business too? Uh, both, both. So okay. um, 
I'm really fortunate to have some amazing friends who just let me come and hang out with them and we get to do cool stuff. Um, like I'm here with my friend Jeff here in Colorado. And then a lot of it's for work too. So like I work with a lot of my colleagues and friends. So mm -hmm. I'll show up, we'll do some stuff together and then I'll hit the road. Um, and I and I work for a company out of Austin, Texas called Aperon Zoe, which means limitless in Greeks, Greek. Um, so I'll go there like every six to eight weeks for some work. Um, I happen to be director of human resilience for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I do a lot of work on, on in that space with those guys. What what's the company in Texas called again? It's called a Peron Zoe. Means limitless in Greek. It's a precision medicine group. So, okay. like for instance, you as a client would come in. They do epigenetics testing, all kinds of blood work, brain testing. So they get a big picture view, like all all your different parameters, your hormone panel, your brainwave activities. You know, um, a little bit of everything. Epigenetics, what are genes are upregulated, downregulated. And then they create a, a healing slash medical slash um, optimist human optimization. I wouldn't say healing because they're not working with sick people, but a human optimization program based on your uniqueness at that time. And then they keep testing and measuring you over time to make adjustments accordingly. So they're working to optimize you by using precision-based interventions. Mm -hmm. So you'll use drugs, peptides, nutrition, fitness. Um, at, at our center, we have brain machines. We do a lot of brain work. Um, there's a ketamine clinic there, so you know someone's interested in the medicine work can do ketamine. Wide variety of different things there. It's really cool. It's a good group of people. How does one uh, sign up for something like that? Um, offline, I can I can I'll send you a link. <laughs> okay, yeah, <laughs> sure. Check it out. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of figure it's something you have to do outside your normal uh, healthcare provider zone. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's not, not something your doctor is going to ever uh, refer you to. <laughs> no, because most doctors aren't familiar with nutrition or human health period, let alone nutrition. Yeah. But these guys are very specialized in like human optimization. And you're the uh, director of resilience, right? Human resilience. Yeah. 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 Human resilience. Okay. So yeah. what all, what all does that entail? Or is that just kind of a continuation of what you're already doing? So for them, already? it entailed five things. I helped them build out an online training program called, I think it was like on human anti-fragility using Nassim Salab's work. So like, okay. you know, how can you become more anti-fragile? So we have this whole program online. I think it's available on the website. Um, I work for I work with some of their medical clients in the clinic. I coach them. Um, we have a mastermind group called the RTA Collective, and I coach in that program. And I used to teach in their Epigenetics Academy, which just shut down this last year. So for about two years, I think I was teaching the academy. Um, and epigenetics is just fascinating. It's like what environmental factors turn on or downregulate, upregulate your genes. It's like how do you optimize your health or reduce your chances for certain illnesses? You can look at your genetic genetics um, and then modify your environment accordingly. You modify what you do to optimize your human health. It's, it's really cool. Like I learned, I learned so much teaching there and I spent so much money teaching there. Mm -hmm. Our students were like really into biohacking. So they'd be like, hey, have you, have you tried this? I'm like, no, order it online. <laughs> so I think that program cost me more to work for them than I earned working for them. But it's fun. It's good. <laughs> now, this uh, this uh, fascination or this interest in biohacking, you know, it keeps coming up over and over again. Um, I think some people, I think, kind of see it as, you know, a way of trying to short circuit the system mm -hmm. in a way. Or is it, but it's really more about just kind of like, just like you said, optimizing your potential. 
right? It's just kind of like taking whatever kind of built-in genetic potential that you have and just trying to make the most of it. Well, I'd say yes and. I, 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 I do have a personal critique of it. Um, okay. But I do think there, there are ways of understanding one's physiology or one's biology and then learning to optimize it with various tools, technologies, practices, exogenous chemicals, all that kind of good stuff. Really important. And ultimately, I think, you know, we're Americans and we like the fast. We want it. You know, we want it yesterday. And ultimately, I don't think there's any like fast. I want it yesterday. No magic bullet. Like, yes, do all the biohacking things. But in my my opinion, in my experience, like you actually have to have daily practices, daily disciplines. You actually have to go and do stuff on a daily basis. You can't just hack on a Friday and expect your life to be perfect for the rest of the week, like the rest of the week until the weekend. Like, no, you actually have to do stuff. Physically train, work on your emotionality, open your heart, you know, think differently. Whatever, whatever your things are, spiritual practices. Like these are daily things. This is not just a one-off. I'm going to biohack my way to human optimization and transcendence or something. So when we talk about human optimization, um, I think there's a generalized, uh, accept, generally accepted definition of what it really means. But I find the more people I talk to that they have their own kind of interpretation of what optimization really looks like. Um, you know, s s some of it's kind of more objective, more subjective uh, to the person. Uh, kind of wanted to know what your feelings on that are. So... Um... I'm, I'm going to answer that question through two different angles. One is I'd say there's no, like the name of my program is the emergent human. Right. That's, I mean, you mentioned that. Thank you for the podcast. Mm -hmm. Because my basic contention is there's no final stage or state of human evolution. Like life conditions keep changing. We have to adapt to them. We have to continually adapt and change and grow and evolve or die. So there's no, in my opinion, final optimized state you're working towards optimization and it changes over time. Like what it might be for me as a 20 year old is different than a 40 year old and different as a 60 year old, mm -hmm. just because there's some capacities that expand as you get older and some capacities begin to slow down. You know? So optimization for me is like, I, I look at the whole human system and I say, how do we thrive in all the different areas? Like physically, how do we thrive? And you start asking the questions like, how are you sleeping, eating, moving, uh, dealing with stress and your time in nature? And you look at how do you, how do I thrive psychologically, somatically, cognitively, emotionally, spiritually, energetically? Ask those questions and organize around those things. Like how do I how do I thrive interpersonally? Oh, great! How do I open my heart, remove the hard armor, be more caring, compassionate, loving, receptive, expressive? You know those kind of things. So for me, it's like I look at all those things. I look to see where the person's at. Like what what might be the next iteration for them? Okay, cool. Let's work in that direction. But I, I look to look at it kind of holistically or comprehensively. It's not just one thing. It's physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, you know, and interpersonal, and, 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 and. Where do you find people are mostly lacking or even the most desirous? Do you think they just want the, the great physicality, like the feeling great, looking great, that sort of thing, the, you know, the kind of the, uh, the gym culture kind of um, idea of what being fit is? Um, or is it really, does it dig deeper in that and they want something a bit more intangible? That's an excellent question. And I say, yes, and? so <laughs> Okay. It's, it's funny because, uh, you know, still fit would attract like the kind of guys, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and gals too. Um, and I remember I had one client who was like, he was training for his next Kokoro, then he's going to do a Spartan race and he's going to do a Tough Mudder. And I'm just watching one and I'm just noticing, I'm like, wow, he's really driven. But something else is going on. 
like what is like almost like what's he running from as opposed to running to mm, you know? right you know so i i challenged him i said because at sealfit we had this concept called 20x you can do 20 times more than you think you can do which is great and true and i believe it. right but for someone like a type a personality or type triple a personality like this guy like tw doing 20 times more of what you're capable of doing is not probably the best thing for you because because the drivers behind that are unhealthy so like I challenge him in that case to do negative 20 X. Like how do we remove activities from your life? How do you slow down and just sit with yourself? So for him, he came in cause he wanted to be you know, cool, cool. His challenge was like, just sit with yourself, sit with your emotions, sit with your thoughts. Like he'd rather go run a race, climb a mountain, lift some weights, than like do that inner work. So like for me, I was like, wow, the way in might be physicality to kind of flip the mirror and say, Cool, we can use physicality, but it's really about developing emotional and mental and spiritual selves. So people might come in through the physical stuff, but they open them up to all these other possibilities if they want to do the work. Yeah. yeah. Well, I definitely know that's what, when I started looking at Seal Fit and Kokoro, I definitely know that's what attracted me to it. It's like all this really hard, rigorous, you know, almost, you know, very uh, challenging physical, um, uh, physical chances to really kind of show what I can, I can do. And, you know, of course, you know, let's be fair. That, that's what they put the photographs on the, on the website. I mean, <laughs> they, I think they want to attract a certain type of person. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, and it's hard to really kind of draw, I think people in mainly, which is pictures of like meditation <laughs> or, you know, just conversations or something right, like right, that. Right, right, right. I, I think so. You know, you gotta be business minded about these things to a yep. degree. Um, yeah, I think you're probably right. In that person's uh, case, the hardest thing for them would be just to like dial down because yeah. they probably are really running from something. There's probably some sort of trauma in their background that they are just trying to, you know, get away from. Um, and on that note, is that been kind of typical of a lot of the people that come in there? They're just kind of out there to, they really want to prove that, you know, they are not what someone told them there are, or what they believe they are for so long. Well, it's really, that's a great, that's another great question. It's fascinating because when you come in, you talk about Kokoro specifically, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Mark will say at the very beginning, what is your why? Why are you coming in? And if your why is weak, you most likely won't make it. If your why is strong, like you really believe your why, then you'll have more likelihood of going passing, making it through. And if for some, if their why is like based on lack of self-sense, the way the seal cadre operates on you, you're gonna f most likely feel worse about yourself and break down and have to leave. Like if, if that's your driver, like you probably won't make it. And that's not always true. Like you might be able to get the fortitude and then be able to mind. Like it doesn't matter how I feel about myself. I'm going to push through it. But these guys are really good, the SEALs, at finding your weakness, which is like the, the belief system we have about ourselves and just pounding you until you break open and realize like, oh, that's not really me. That's a belief system in you know, from my family of origin. Or like, oh, I believe that because look, look, look the reflection I'm getting and I'm going to get out. And I've seen that because I've coached I've coached it as well, not only participated in it, and I've noticed like s some people whose drivers are, you might say from their wounds or from the trauma, are seemingly less likely to make it through. Really? That's interesting because, you know, if you look at somebody like uh, David Goggins, you know, right, I don't know if you've... Yeah, yeah, he's driven yeah. by his. 
Oh yeah, for sure it is. He's absolutely fueled by it. And if you ever, you know, listen to him talk or even read his book, um, he just, he hammers home the point again and again. It's like my, my childhood and my early adulthood is a huge, is the fuel that feeds this fire, you know? And, but you, you're saying that he is the uh, he's the exception and not the rule. Well, that no, most... I mean, like like I said, it can come to the point where like the mm-hmm. seal cadre is pounding you for whatever your thing is, mm-hmm. and you might have the realization like, oh, that's actually like I don't need to be driven by that anymore. Like I don't oh, need to okay. be driven by my wounds, my trauma. I have something deeper inside of me, the kokoro, the indomitable spirit, and boom, I can complete. But there are some people who like are kind of re-triggered, and the wound kind of comes back up, and the seals know how to take advantage of that. And it blows them open. They have to. They don't blow open to grow and to evolve to something else. They go back to their earlier state, and I have to leave because I can't handle this. Right. So either either one can happen. Right. It's not just one. Okay. Yeah. Are, is it actual like SEAL commanders and instructors that run these Kokoro events? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like wow. like civilian staff support them, but it's the SEALs or occasionally have other units guys that come in and help out, but mostly SEALs. Oh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know if that encourages me or scares me. Honestly, <laughs> uh, now it, I want to go. I want to kind of go back to the interpersonal um, sure. development uh, because you know we have just emerged out of this era of COVID, which mm-hmm. kind of sucked everything out of us for three years, and it's still around. I know it's still around, but it hasn't like it hasn't like. Um, raptured the world like, like it did. did just a couple of years ago a year ago yeah. <laughs> a couple of years ago um so interpersonal relationships obviously took a huge toll because of covid because of the isolation because of the shutdowns because everything had to go online and i just want to know what your input on that is yeah so i i think it can it it is continuation of trends that I see, which are problematic for us as a species. Mm-hmm. You know, anything that continually disconnects us from ourselves and other people is a problem. You know, and my favorite example is like birth, like breastfeeding, except for a small segment of women who medically cannot do it. You should have a vaginal birth and you should breastfeed. Like if you want the optimization for your, your baby without limitations, because like I said, there's medical reasons not to do those two things. But like, just in terms of bonding, like you get the you get the health benefits, immune benefits of vaginal birth, and you get the benefits of connecting deeply with your mom through breastfeeding. There's a whole neurochemical connection between the baby and the mother. Like if you don't set the baby up to thrive in that early stages, it's more um, open to all the negative conditioning that our culture offers, mm-hmm. including online. Like I mean, I love being online. I love doing this. This is really cool. Yeah. Like you see these kids, all they're all, they're always on their phone, they're always on their iPads, they're always on their devices. Like that, besides physically, like you're in this position, that's not really good. You know, it you're you're not developing the full full neuro neuro capacity that's possible for us as human beings. Yeah. And you're also definitely not open to the heart, like because you're you're so focused on whatever the, the digital stuff is, you're not actually connecting with another human being. So like if if we did the vaginal birth and the and the breastfeeding. And then we rethought how we do everything else in, in line with our nature, like what's appropriate for us as human beings evolutionarily or however you want to look at it. Like we do a lot better, but we do the exact opposite of what we should do as human beings should like for our health and well-being. 
food is horrible. The education system's not so great. Environmental factors which contribute to you know cancer, neurotoxicity, and all that kind of stuff. Like like let's do everything that's contrary to human health and well-being, and that's what we do in our in our culture. Do you no, think it's in gonna, my opinion? Do you do you, do you think it's going to change? Well, what I what I find fascinating is looking at these niches of people who are questioning and challenging, creating something new. It's like in health and fitness, you have all these kind of people trying new things out: psychedelics, natural medicine, lots of company alternative medicine practices. In the fitness space, you have like MoveMat and other things like that that are really kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, you know, just just alternative, um, playful places to explore new things. In education, you have unschooling, homeschooling, deschooling, democratic preschooling, these co-ops that are emerging. Like, you know, so in different areas of human life, I'm like, wow, that's really cool. Like, that's a counterbalance to the cultural forces, which I think are problematic. Now, the question is, where's the where's the line? Like, do we have enough people playing, experimenting, trying new things that can counterbalance the negativity and move us in the right direction? Or where's the tipping point? Like, where is it going to be too late? I don't know. I'm hoping, I'm hopeful, I'm optimistic. Like there's enough people playing that we'll, we'll be able to move the whole culture in the right, or at least the majority of the culture in the right direction. Do you think they, uh, the future that's ahead of us is going to benefit from, actually benefit from the COVID-19 pandemic? Or you think it's just, it's been a huge setback? Well, the one area that I think is really interesting are these educational co-ops because what a lot of people, a lot of parents realize is like how much time is wasted in, in school. They got to see like live in their homes, like how much time is just wasted. Now you can actually do what you need to do in such a shorter period of time. So a lot of people start pulling their kids out of school and homeschooling them. But they realize like, okay, I, I can't do everything for my child. If I, and I don't mean de-schooling, but homeschooling. De-schooling is a completely different thing. But like, let's create these educational co-ops. And there's some, I, I've not watched as much as I used to, because I used to do education policy. I used to do lots of different things in the past. I used to pay much more attention to it, but there's some really interesting things going on around the country where families are coming together and they're creating these education co-ops. It's like these mini schools. And it is just a whole different model than the conventional industrial education system we have. I think that's a good outcome from COVID. Uh, a second one is, and I don't know how vast this is, but I gave a talk two, three summers ago, like in the middle of COVID, to the European Union, like uh, European Union members, to nonprofits, to to transnational corporations, um, I was what wide variety of people. I was just I wasn't just one person giving a talk to these people. It's virtual, and I and I said one of the sh things I think is a problem is that we're only looking at the vaccine and social distancing in terms of how do we help people improve their immune function because we know people slept better, ate better, had more social connection dealt with stress better, moved and had fitness, you increase the, the increase the functionality of the human system. So it's less likely to be taken down by whatever. Not impossible, but less likely. No one talked about that. No one talked about diet and nutrition. No one talked about fitness and movement, human connection and social engagement and, and you know stress management. There's all vaccines, very particular drugs or social distancing. I'm like, wow, man, there's, here's an opportunity to educate people on these other things too. But I started seeing more and more people questioning that. Like, oh, wait, there are, there are ways I can take, empower myself, be sovereign, and increase the likelihood of having an optimized immune system. So decrease the likelihood of these problems emerging from these pandemics or other diseases, right? But our medical system, government systems don't talk that 
but the people are starting to talk that way. So I'm hoping you know, there's enough of them, like you, talking right. about fitness and health and well-being. Well, do you think a lot of that had to do with the uh, European Union or the government of the United States all just kind of like responding to a huge demand because this, this pandemic was happening, it was really scary to a lot of people? That vaccine, um, it's pretty remarkable in terms of how fast they really got it out. I mean, it just showed you like what the federal government can accomplish when enough people push it in a different direction and they put enough of their weight behind something and it was pretty it was bipartisanly supported in its uh development well, it's like going it's, to the moon if yeah you mind to it you can go to the moon right yeah it was well yeah it was like it was it was it was lightning fast in terms of how they developed it they developed it and they got it out to the public and how fast it spread they were able to, they phased it out into the public, you know, the first, the frontline workers, like people work in hospitals yeah. and what like that, they got first access to it. And then from there, it just kind of became so widespread. Now you can buy a COVID-19 test packet. You know, you starting out with, you had to go to the doctor's office or a clinic or yeah. somewhere else. And yeah. they would come, somebody would come out in full garb and swab your nose yeah, 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 and, yeah. and see if you had COVID. Yeah. Yeah. I do remember too. Yeah. And now you can just buy the stupid thing at a Walgreens anywhere. And, you know, it's just over the counter. It's really just remarkable. Just, and you think about just, this is what, three years only yeah, 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 that, yeah. that this went from being like non-existent to being ubiquitous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not arguing against any of that. I'm just saying, I yeah. think the, the paradigm is just too narrowly focused. Mm. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm not saying you were, I'm just saying yeah. like the, the evolution of this whole thing was just amazing, was amazing, yeah, yeah, amazingly fast. Um, but I'm with you in there, like the the individual emphasis on like owning your own health yeah. uh, is is lacking a lot of times. And um, I was so I was just trying to wonder if from the COVID nineteen pandemic, you know, we saw so much carnage of it. If like in the long view, we could actually see something actually good from this in both like a you know a macro and micro sort of way. Yeah, I always imagine there's always light in the darkness. Yeah, uh, and you might not see it immediately. You might see it five years from now, ten years from now, in mm -hmm. terms of shifts in the culture based on the pandemic. But like like I said, for me, the education shift is really fascinating. I think it's right. a positive one, as one of many. Now I just have to keep watching, see what see what emerges. So I have kind of a more of a personalized question for you. What sure. was it like working with Mark Devine? Um, so I'll, I'll share a funny story. I was with him in uh, New York. So we're at, um, he has a compound, his family compound. And we're there, I, I used to run his inner circle, which is like his mastermind group. Mm -hmm. So it was me and his, me and him and his, and his daughter, Catherine, who's a dear friend of mine. And we're sitting on like on the lake. And we just woke up that morning. We walk out to the, the like where the little boats hang out. I was like, okay, it's time to do burpees. I'm like, okay, how many? 300. So 300 burpees is what we have to do every morning when we first woke up. That's like working with him. That's what it's like working with him. That's <laughs> like Three, 300 welcome, burpees. Welcome, yeah, welcome to the morning. Yeah. He's, yeah. Always, he's, always, uh, he's kind of always fascinated me because, you know, he's a SEAL commander, so mm -hmm. you know he's badass. He, mm -hmm. That's kind of implied. Uh, Personality-wise, though, like, I know, he seems just very atypical of like a SEAL commander in terms of, 
uh, at least in terms of like how he presents himself, you know, he's very different from say other personalities who are similar, like say maybe Jocko Willing out there, like really loud and yeah. boisterous and power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, well, you know, Jocko, he's not he's not really loud. He's but he's more, I would think, typical the typical uh, stereotype of like what a, a Navy SEAL. What you would imagine be, I think them to be? What you would ma- most people would imagine to be. Mark Devine doesn't seem to be hmm. like that. I mean, because he kind of. He goes in a lot into the Eastern philosophy yeah, 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 yeah. about about uh, human development, much yeah. more so than I think anyone else uh, does who is a SEAL. Yeah, and, he, he trained, uh, I can't remember the guy's name, the well-known Japanese karate guy who got mm-hmm. him into Zen. So because like, his entry point was like Zen. <clears throat> and I know he studied other kind of Eastern martial arts, ninjutsu and Aikido. So he's, he's well, well-versed. And he's also a certified yoga instructor. So you're right, like he's... He's gone east, <laughs> and, and he said that that stuff is what got him powered through buds training yeah, and stuff yeah, like that. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So that was just kind of like a little bit of a digression there. I was yeah, just yeah, kind of wondering. Good. Yeah, cool, cool. yeah, yeah. Um, guess I guess I wanted to know. Um, I guess more of the, the emergent human idea. So I guess we've already kind of touched on that. A little um, bit. I, I can just briefly look like there's four pillars. Right. Well, I'm just kind of like That's... thinking about, well, yeah, I'm thinking about what I saw. Yeah. The four pillars I think I saw on your website cool. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can't think of them off the top of my head there, but yeah, I know there's a little bit more into that that I kind of wanted to get from you than what we just touched on. So yeah, why don't you start with there? Yeah. Well, I already talked about the, so I, I, the four pillars, there's four pillars and then the, the program itself, the four pillars are, physiological so mm-hmm. help clients down their physiology their sleep nutrition diet fitness movement time in nature and so and um so and um stress management which i've talked about a little bit the second piece is we look at the psychological which is somatic or body body experience from within cognitive how we think the scripts in our head emotional emotionality spiritual energetic but then also look at social like i look at how people engage the world around them their friends or family members or co-workers and ask the questions like are, are, are those social ecologies supportive of the growth you're attempting to make in your life if you're with your like if you're married and your spouse is like anti-growth and you're trying mm-hmm. to grow like that's gonna be really really hard so like how do we get your friends family members co-workers and spouse on board with your growth and development is a question i ask and how can i support the team you have around you so i'll, I'll work with people's doctors Psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, uh, nutritionists, epigenetics coaches, whomever, like who's ever on your team, I'll work with to make sure we're in the same direction. So I'm a very like, team slash community oriented. Then I ask the questions: What communities do you need to be part of to help you grow and develop? You know, like is there a, is there a, tr- a physically training community you want to be a part of, or a religious spiritual community, or a community that helps develop your your emotionally? So like we look at that, we map all that stuff out, and then the fourth piece is environmental. Does your home, office, and transportation support the person you're becoming, the new habits, or they detract and keep you locked into your old ways of being? So we can look at everything, break it down, and we change things. Like I, like I could literally come to your kitchen and walk through your kitchen and say, is that supporting you? Is that detracting from you? Is that like, let's walk through these things. I'm like, oh, wow, look at, you know, I want to eat a certain way, but I have a certain food in my house. Like there's a lack of alignment. Let's have that conversation. Or like, I want to physically train. Okay, where's your equipment? Or where's your gear? Oh, I don't have it out. I don't have it available. 
well, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So like, how do we change your environment to support these new behaviors? So I spent a lot of time on that as well. So say it was like, it's like, you know, if you want to, if you want to train yourself to start running in the morning and keep your shoes out <laughs> where you visibly see them every day when you wake up, that kind of thing. Exactly. You know, so I talked about AM rituals, PM rituals and transitional rituals. And it's really important. As I mentioned earlier, I love biohacking. It's kind of fun, mm-hmm. you know, and like you need to have daily practices. And you want to set up your environment to support these daily practices. So make it as easy for you as possible. Like, hey, you're going to run, have all your clothes ready so you can jump out the door and go run with all the equipment you need. You shouldn't be looking for it in the morning. Mm-hmm. That's distracting. And most likely you're going to get distracted in another another direction. It's like make make your environment supportive of your rituals as easy as possible. Your disciplines, your practices, your exercises, whatever you do, for sure. So you're in Colorado now and living the nomadic lifestyle. Yeah. Where, where are you going to next? Uh, back to D.C. I can visit my sister and my father for Thanksgiving. Oh, nice. um, and then I have a buddy, uh, two buddies in Virginia I'm going to go see. And then I'm going to go to Austin, Texas to do some work. And then I'm hoping after Texas to go to Florida or Southern California, uh, uh, San Diego for the winter. I don't want to be around the cold. <laughs> we'll I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame you. Yeah. How's the road treating you? You know, I'm really fortunate. I have some really good friends. And I'll, and I'll tell you this, not only do I have really good friends, but most of them are like coaches or teachers or therapists. So like, there's nowhere I go that I, I'm not challenged, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. Like I can't go with shit. Like, <laughs> you know, like I like to, I like to joke around eating your own dog food and like, man, there's no, like, I've not been a place where I'm not challenged to make sure I'm eating my own dog food, doing my work, doing my inner work, doing my inner work. So it's been wonderful, you know? being on the road so far well michael we have a a closing tradition on the podcast where the uh guest gives the final word to the audience okay so if you can get leave the audience with one thing and one thing to remember what would you say it would be a random act of kindness you just never know what someone's going through in their life Mm -hmm. i mean it literally could be the edge of giving up on life and, the, and you could just say or do something really kind of them and just give them a new possibility and pretty much save their life. So like just say hey, every day, see what you can do to be kind to another human being. You can save their life. So just an open call to civility. There you go. Civility and kindness. All nice. right. Thank you. Well, Michael, thanks so much for coming on. Sure. This has been great. Thanks, Sean. Appreciate it, buddy. Yeah. And uh, thanks everyone who is listening, everyone who ever will listen. This is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. Again, my name is Sean and my guest today was Michael Osterlich. Osterlich? Yeah. Osterlich. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> I'll be able to say that without struggling one of these days. But until, the ne- until next time, everybody, train hard. Peace out. Thanks so much.